Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Pediatric Consult. I'm Dr. Paul Bunch, your host for today. I am a pediatrician in the Cincinnati area, and I am very happy to be here for today's discussion. In the studio today is Dr. Patrick Whitlock from the Division of Orthopedic Surgery, who is here today to discuss slipped capral femoral epiphysis, also known as SCIFI, and also other aspects of hip pain in our adolescent patients. First of all, Dr. Whitlock, we'd like to get to know you a little bit. If you could tell us you know, about, about your background, about your training, any special clinical or other interests that you have. Sure, sounds great. Uh, good morning, Paul. Thank you for having me here. Um, so my background is I was trained, obviously, as an orthopedic surgeon, and then I did a pediatric orthopedic surgery fellowship. But before that, I did a fellowship in hip preservation and reconstruction in Switzerland. And I actually stayed on staff where I trained a little bit before that for about six months. Um, after my PEDS fellowship, I came directly here, and I've been here since 2014. Uh, I just completed a second traveling fellowship in uh, hip preservation uh, through what's called the Anchor Group. And so my entire clinical focus is hip preservation and pediatric adolescent young adult hip. I see patients from 0 to 45, so there's no sort of aging out, which has always been a problem, especially with the topic we're going to talk about today. Um, and so those are my clinical interests, really, our hip, and obviously I take care of trauma, um, as we all do, but um, hip is my sort of specialty, and it's the only thing on my, on my visit type. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so it's a pleasure to be here. Okay, well, I appreciate having, you know, having your expertise in, in, in the city and in the, in the Cincinnati Children's. Um, so our conversation today is on slipped capral femoral epiphysis, uh, which is commonly known in the pediatric world as SCIFI. Um, so we'll use that term for, the, for our conversation. Um, I think most of us are familiar with it. We have a general knowledge about it, but we don't see it very often in the community. So it's not always top of mind for us. And I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about you know, the general anatomy and maybe some of the pathophysiology that leads to SCIFI in our patients. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the interesting thing about SCIFI is that, you know, it's, it's sort of a misnomer. Um, the top of the femoral uh, the femur, the head, basically, is divided into two sections. Um, and one is the epiphysis, which is uh, closest to the joint surface. The other is the metaphysis. And what actually moves is the metaphysis and the rest of the femur. And so the epiphysis, the actual weight-bearing part of the ball, stays in your socket, and the uh, metaphysis moves sort of anterior and externally rotates some. And that's the biggest problem with the slip is that uh, it produces this large bump and it also takes away all what's called your femoral version of the twist in your femur that's really uh, responsible for how well your hip moves in flexion and internal rotation. Um, it's generally seen more commonly in males and uh, than females, but the incidence is relatively similar, one in 2,000 to one in 3,000 depending. Um, our understanding of it is that it's an overload of the physis, which separates the epiphysis from the metaphysis. Um, so it only occurs in kids who have an open growth plate. It can occur in, you know, a 22-year-old that's normal <laughs> um, from a bone standpoint. Um, and that load can be uh, sort of asymmetric or uh, abnormal for different reasons. One is the, the prevailing thought is that there's a large patient who experiences large, you know, growth in their BMI or body mass, and they're loading that normal physis or a physis that's slightly inclined, the growth plate being the physis, 
um, and it causes a slip through that. The other is that you have a physis that's, for lack of a better term, sick or, or abnormal. So kids that have received growth hormone treatment have had radiation of the proximal femur for different reasons, uh, things like that, where it's a relatively normal load or a sudden twist or something like that um, that occurs. Uh, most of our patients are in, a, in the higher BMIs, you know, well above 80th percentile for the majority of patients and even, you know, is still a majority of patients above the 90th. Um, there is the so-called um, skiffy that's not associated with that, or skinny skiffy is what it's been termed, uh, for lack of a better term. Um, and those are our patients that come in and they don't seem to have the, the normal, typical appearance or risk factors uh, of the classic skiffy patient. And so you always have to be on the lookout for them. Um, but the thing that we see overall is that in about 20 years, uh, our missed percentage of skiffies doesn't seem to have gone down. And I'm not going to single out pediatricians for that because the orthopedic surgeons have also missed them when we look back at the data. Um, and so a high suspicion for them, as you said, you don't see them often, um, but a high suspicion for them and anybody with an open growth plate is really kind of critical for them. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. And you've actually touched on a couple of things that I was going to be asking. So sure. typical risk factors, things that you know, when we see a patient in the office who's having hip pain or limp or knee pain or something like that, what background factors might lead us to have Skiffy higher in our differential? Yeah, I think if you see a kid who's really small for their age, you know, below the 10th percentile, you should be concerned about it. Um, any endocrinopathies that, uh, you know, are being treated, um, hypothyroidism is the big one that comes to mind. Um, growth hormone treatment and recent cessation of growth hormone treatment is uh, another one that comes to mind. Um, our Downs kids or trisomy 21 kids, very high risk, especially for bilateral. Uh, and why is that? Um, we don't, I don't know if we know. Okay. <laughs> um, they have very lax hips and they're typically, you know, somewhat dysplastic, but they just have a much higher rate and it, it probably has something to do with the collagen. Um, similar to the reason they're lax, but that's a sort of postulate, not a fact. Okay. Sure. <laughs> um, and then hyper-PTH as well and hypo-PTH, um, those are big things. Um, you know, any renal osteodystrophies, those kids should be really high on your radar to where if they're having any hip pain and knee pain or limp at all, really they should just get an AP and frog pelvis, frog being the most important kind of clinical screen, but we can talk a little bit more about that. And do you find in your practice, are these risk factors additive? You know, if you have a kid who is less, th less than 10th percentile, but high BMI, you know, do those two things, are they, are they additive? Are they kind of independent? Um, you know, if we start ticking off things off the list you just mentioned, does our, does your clinical suspicion start raising exponentially or does it just kind of I think if I see depends any, on the clinical situation. It does a bit, but I think if I see any of those things, there I'm I'm already like at a ten out of ten as okay. far as suspicion because I know that the the long term sequelae are so poor, and so you just don't want to miss it up front. Um, and it's a progressive problem, right? So it starts with the ball slipping a little, which can probably be well tolerated for most of your life if we catch it and kind of inside to fixate it. Um, and that's just with a screw percutaneously through a very small incision, you know, a couple centimeters um, versus, you know, something where it's completely off and we have to do an actual dislocation of the hip and try to put the ball back on the, on the, uh, the ice cream back on the cone, if you will. Okay. Um, so is that typically how you see it then? It's a, a slow, gradual process or is it typically one major traumatic event? So there, there are a couple types that leads us into an important discussion. One is sort of considered the stable slip, and that's a little bit of a misnomer as well because it's not necessarily stable 
physically when you open the hip joint up and look at it. But stable means, uh, this is the loader classification, and it just means that it has a low risk of avascular necrosis, which is the sort of dreaded outcome of Skiffy. Um, and that means that the patient can come in, and it doesn't matter if they're holding on to a rail, it doesn't matter if they're using a crutch, a walker, any of those things that are having some assistance from mom or dad or you know, nurse, whoever it is, um, they can put weight on it. The unstable is where they can't stand no matter what, and that's the one where typically you see a much larger displacement. So again, the ice cream and cone analogy, it's where the ice cream's kind of on the side of the cone almost instead of on the top um, or somewhere in between, and that um, that has a much higher risk of AVN. So it's, it's somewhat prognostic. So they can present in both ways, but typically they're much more common to be, we probably see, you know, four to five stables for every unstable that we see. Okay. Just roughly. So then thinking about in, in my office, what would be the type of presentations, you know, the, the chief complaints, the story that we hear from our, from the patients and the parents that would, you know, lead us down that pathway of doing an evaluation for Skiffy? What's yeah. a typical kid who's coming to our office? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the several ways of sort of looking at it are one, a limp in a child is really not ever normal and it shouldn't, you know, even if they get hit or, I mean, if they got hit in a football game or something like that and they, they're really sore from it, um, had a muscular injury, I can see that. But especially if it's a limp that's been going on for several weeks or it's become progressive, uh, it's associated with any pain, especially at the knee. The knee is the number one thing you have to look out for because it's referred pain from the hip. And many times they'll actually have knee pain and not have any hip pain at all. Um, which can throw you off too. But if you see a child come in with a limp, you should have, you should be very suspicious if they have open growth plates that this is a skiffy till proven otherwise. The other thing is when they walk, if it is a stable, they're often gonna point their toes out. And so that's because they're trying to accommodate for the deformity because it's uncomfortable to turn their hip in or what's called internal rotation. Um, and so, when you examine those children, if you lay them on their back and they're supine and you really try to keep their knee very um, parallel to the other knee and bring that knee all the way up towards their chest without it going out to the side, kids with the skiffy can't do that. They will have what's called obligate external rotation, meaning they will want to go into a frogged position in order to get to 90 degrees of hip flexion. And if they're doing that, that's almost pathognomonic. And so that's a very easy test. Now, if a kid comes in with an unstable slip, they can't bear weight at all. If a kid can't bear weight at all, you're gonna get x-rays. Almost everybody is, they're gonna be very concerned about that. That's sort of the easier one, but these are a little uh, uh, more sort of sinister in their appearance. So if, that, if you see that, that's an automatic x-ray as well. Um, any of the kids that have those risk factors, we talk about the Downs kids, uh, kids who have had growth hormone therapy, uh, any hip pain or knee pain in a kid with open physis, skiffy till proven otherwise. Okay. Um, uh, any specific exam techniques or maneuvers that you would suggest we do? You mentioned, you know, just hip flexion. Yeah, the obligate external rotation is really a big one. And, and if they have a lot of pain, um, watch them walk. If they're, you know, if they have a lot of pain with flexion of the hip and internal rotation, watch them walk. If they externally rotate, especially one foot, if their foot progression angle is going out to the side on one on the affected side and not on the other, be careful. There can be bilateral slips where they're both going to walk sort of like a duck and kind of waddle down the hall. That's very suspicious as well. Um, but I think hip pain, knee pain, um, high BMI, 
or very low BMI, recent endocrine, obligate external rotation, pain with hip range of motion, uh, and that outward foot progression angle are probably your highest sort of, you know, bang for your buck. Okay. So if we have this kid in our office, and like you said, we're concerned for Skiffy until proven otherwise, what are our next steps? So next step is, is to get them off of it, because what we do know, and there's good data for, is that the longer the symptoms are present, the more likely the slip worsens. So the farther the ball comes off the femur. Um, and that makes the symptoms and long-term prognosis worse. There's good data for that. Um, so you want to get them off of it and protect them. You want to prevent taking a stable slip and converting it to an unstable, which has a dramatic difference in outcomes because of AVN, which is a rapid problem. Um, and then really, I think if you have any questions at all, just call us um, or call your local pediatric orthopedic surgeon if you have one or, or your orthopedic friends. Um, but in our, in our system, call our on-call, you know, physician on-call through the, through the link. Um, but otherwise, I would get an AP pelvis and frog. Um, and to be very clear, if you're like, hey, I can only get one imaging study for this, the frog leg lateral is the most important thing. Now, if the patient has an unstable slip where they really can't bear weight, they're painful, if you put them into a frog position, it can be really challenging for them. It can also potentially make the slip worse, theoretically, so we like to shoot a cross-table um, x-ray of the proximal femur, and your radiology folks can help you with that, or again, just call us um, and say, hey, you know, this is what's going on. Now, the question I get asked is, well, what if I get this, but I'm still really suspicious? I think the next step is an MRI, and I would still put them on crutches till that MRI read was complete. But again, I think if you get yourself into that position, um, you know, let us know and, and we can help guide you. The other things, obviously, you know, does the patient have a fever? Do they, you know, do they have a recent injury? Was there a trauma? Um, you know, are you, are you suspicious of infection? You know, you may get some other labs and things like that. Okay. And what kind of things could mimic Skiffy and what kind of things could Skimic, could Skiffy mimic? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think in the younger kids, um, you know, most of our musculoskeletal infections kind of taper off by the time this starts to come in. So in female patients, you're looking at about 10 to 13 er years of age. And then in our male patients, you know, it's about 11.5 to 14.5, but really anybody under 16 can have one. Um, and so a lot of the infections is, have kind of tapered off, but there's a little bit of overlap. So I think, you know, making sure it's not an infection, obviously it's not, you know, malignancy, sort of the normal list of, of things that uh, hip pain could possibly be. But sometimes those can present with an external rotation moment at the hip and, um, and create a little bit of a mimic. But it, it's kind of its own thing. When you see it, you sort of know it. Okay. And if we're sitting in our clinic, we've sent this kid to radiology, we get the x-ray report, and it shows, you know, suspicious for Skiffy. Uh, is this the kind of kid we would send to the emergency room, or what would be our next clinical steps to get this kid the care that, that they need? Yeah, fortunately, there's not a lot of, we have some, you know, fractures, other things like that. We're worried about things like compartment syndrome or something like that. But for the most part, for our Skiffies, the biggest thing is getting them off of it, making sure the parents understand not to let them be on it. Um, and then just giving us a call and we can facilitate transfer. But it's not a patient that really, we have some patients where we can do something for them in the ED that we can't do on our floor. But for the most part, Skiffy doesn't have a lot of need for the expertise of the emergency department. Once we've talked to you, that kid can be directly admitted to our floor, or we just say, hey, send him straight over to our clinic. We'll see him, talk to him, look at what to do and go from there. Okay. What kind of turnaround time, you know, 
if the if we talk to our orthopedic on call and they say we can see him in, in clinic tomorrow, is that too is that going to happen? Is that too late, or does this kid need to be seen that same day? So I'll I'll sort of hedge there. Um, one is what I would say is if you have a family that you feel like is very reliable, they understand the gravity of the situation because there is risk associated with it. Um, then I would say that it's okay to be seen in clinic the next day, or even we may just look at the x-ray and say, hey, look, we need to put you know a screw in that and, and do what's called an inside to a pipsiodesis or commonly pinning. Um, we can set that up and give us the patient's number. We'll call them. We'll have them there at whatever time in the morning to do it. Um, or we'll say, yeah, let's have them admitted in the morning. They can come in. But I, I think it just depends on time of day, what's going on. It's a little bit of a particular situation. Ultimately, I feel like the safest thing to do is get them off of it, get them into a monitored situation, and then be able to take care of it as quickly as we can. And so that's what we often recommend. It's it's not so much urgent or emergent, but we want them kind of in our control, yeah. <laughs> for lack of a better term. Yeah. So so once we've you know figured out our diagnosis, we've got them connected to the experts. Um, obviously, the technical aspects of the surgical repairs probably outside the scope of this podcast. Um, but in the follow-up, so you guys will, you know, do whatever repair is indicated based on the severity of the slip. Um, what kind of outcomes do we see? What, what do these kids look like a month later, six months later, a year later? Um, what things should we be continuing to monitor for as they grow? Yeah. So I think, you know, this is changing. And when I first started training, most kids were treated with what's called in situ epipsiodesis for a mild to moderate slip. And then a very severe slip, we employed something called a modified done procedure um, to try to get the ice cream back on the cone. But it has some sequelae itself, as well as some technical challenges that can lead to avascular necrosis. So it's, it's not done at every center. And we still do that in select cases. Um, but most of those mild to moderate slips were sort of turned loose after three to four months and said, hey, you're great. We don't need to seek the screw out. Just kind of go on about your business. Um, and there was a good study from Iowa where they looked at everything, looked at their really long-term follow-up and said, eh, everybody says they're doing really great. And I think what we figured out is that in our data, you know, in Cincinnati, that they're not doing great. And they, they really do, even despite having kind of mild to moderate slips, um, tend to really fall off as far as their function at about five to 10 years, and then even more at the 10 to 15 year period. Um, so they do okay for that sort of first five years, and you can imagine there's sort of 13 to 18 in there, so they compensate, but by the time some damage is done to the hip, um, they seem to start to trail off. And so we're changing our approach to that, trying to identify everything early and be more aggressive about correcting the deformity um, afterwards. So we always have that talk now. We have a, a skiffy protocol that we're enacting where we get imaging to try to sort through them, see who needs something acutely, who doesn't. We're still figuring that out. Um, but really, it's it's like, hey, you're going to be seeing us for the rest of your, you know, up through 30 or until, you know, we figure out that we need to do something. Um, so that's changing. But the long-term sequelae from us and now other centers, even centers in Europe, appears to be that they don't do very well. Okay. So as far as short to medium term, you know, during their adolescence, you know, contact sports, running, um, you know, the, the activities that these kids want to do, are there any limitations on them? So there, there are no limitations from us as far as, you know, hey, you're going to make something worse. Once we put a screw across it, we close down the growth plate so no further slip can occur. Um, the screw can be bothersome to some people both inside the joint and outside. Um, and so occasionally we'll take that out um, just based on where it was pinned. But the problem is, is that now you've essentially that external rotation deformity that they came in with, that's not a pain thing. That's not a, 
uh, hey, I just need to stretch more thing. That's your anatomy has actually changed. And your, your femur was sort of never meant to be really <laughs> externally rotated. And you were never meant to be a, you know, able to really run like a duck. <laughs> that just doesn't work. We can run in-toed, our in-towers do okay with that, but our out-towers, it's really difficult for them. Um, and so we, we're looking at ways to kind of improve those things. But yes, there are limitations that clearly over time happen. And we see even with our initial slips, when we look inside the joint, there's already damage to the cartilage and the labrum surrounding the hip joint, um, even at 11, 12, 13 years of age. Okay. So preventatively then, I'm sure that's where a lot of your research is focused and um, you've said the anatomy's changed. So do things like physical therapy early help? Are there certain types of sports or activities we could uh, point these kids to that might give them better outcome? You know, not, things like swimming or you know, less weight bearing type things or does it not really matter? Yeah, no, I think it does matter. I think it's similar to our femoral acetabular. This is true femoral acetabular impingement. We can sort of have a long discussion about what's FAI on another day, but this is the truest form of it. And I don't think you can sort of argue with it um, as being a problem. And so those kids, their biggest deficit again is that flexion of the hip, internal rotation and adduction. So if you think of our butterfly goalies in hockey, you think of our kids that are catchers, think of our kids that are playing the offensive or defensive line. Um, that are down in a really crouched position, that's a very difficult position for that type of hip, and it's going to create a lot of issues over time. So we sort of encourage them, if they don't want any treatment, to do something like that. We do recommend some therapy just to help with general you know, strengthening range of motion, but really to kind of teach them how to use a hip that's not, quote-unquote, normal anymore. Um, and if that's really not working for them, which is more of what we're seeing, the more we're looking then we're going in and reshaping that femur and trying to add some twist back to a normal position to get them their motion back. So thank you for your time today, Dr. Whitlock. I think those are most of my questions from the general pediatric side. Is there anything else you'd like to add on this topic? Yeah, the only the other thing I would say, you know, about sort of the presentation and, and act, you know, acting and things like that, are we're, we're getting ready to publish a study that looks at the acuity of treatment. And it's a little bit difficult because the kids that have already gone onto an unstable slip, we don't really know what their history was. And, you know, could they have been prevented from going to an unstable slip? Um, but we do know that there's a temporal relationship between worsening of the slip and worse outcomes and the time that the symptoms have been going on. So, again, the, the suspicion for it, as far as prevention, really just being suspicious for it, getting it early can radically change what the kids' outcomes are and what we have to do for them. Um, and so that, that temporal relationship is early kind of understanding that. But I think just, you know, again, to hammer it home and, and sort of beat that drum is that having a high suspicion, no one's ever, you know, getting an AP or frog pelvis of a, of a patient. Um, lots of people are worried about radiation, things like that are AP and frog pelvises and those of most other pediatric institutions or pediatric practices is extremely low. You know, it's less than a flight from here to LA. And so I, I don't want people to be worried about that or think, oh, I just don't want to radiate the child. Go ahead, get it if you want to get knee films too because it's knee pain. But just remember hip pain, knee pain, limb, anybody with an open physis, it, it's a very easy test to get.
Okay. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Whitlock. I uh, just want to remind our listeners that uh, the basis for today's conversation is the Slipped Capital Femoral Epiphysis Community Practice Support Tool. You can find that on CincinnatiChildrens.org. Also, today's episode is available for CME. You can find the link for that in the description. And I want to thank you again, Dr. Patrick Whitlock from Cincinnati Children's uh, for his time and expertise today. Hope you guys have a good rest of your day. Thank you, Paul. And if you like what you heard today, uh, feel free to leave us a review. And if you have any ideas for future topics, feel free to leave those in the comments.